I don't think we would have picked him had we been there. I don't think if we had been one of the crowd, one of the regular people who were watching Jesus and his entourage move around from place to place, I doubt we would ever have picked that tall one as the one that would let him down. There was something about Simon that commanded uh, response, interest, curiosity, respect. There was something about him that made him seem to most people like he would be the very last person you could possibly imagine being on the blacklist of Easter. Simon had been amongst the very first people to respond to the call of Jesus to follow. He had laid down his nets. He had released the things that had been his preoccupation, and he had walked after the master. Simon had this confidence about him, this boldness that people respected, that people just naturally wanted to respond to. And, and he seemed to understand Jesus and Jesus' way. He was one of the people that would invite others to come and, and to follow Jesus as well. And many others came because of him. And not surprisingly, Peter was also bold and brash, and he was the kind of person that would speak the truth when others were afraid to speak it or struggled to even get hold of it. And so it is not surprising that he actually had the insight to perceive who Jesus really was and to confess it before anyone else did. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That was the title he used for himself, the Son of Man, taken from the prophet Daniel. Who do they say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah the Methodist. Just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> And still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Said Jesus. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You're the one that we have been waiting for. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus. That's who you are. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, that from now on, Simon, you are Peter, Petros, Rocky. That's who you are. You are the one. You are the rock on whom I will build my church. And I tell you, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And what you don't know, because unless you've been to Caesarea Philippi, it would never occur to you is that right there in that particular place, you're in a village that sits at the foot of a rock like El Capitan, a massive rock formation. And Jesus was, in effect, saying, Peter, you're like that. You're strong like that. 
And on this kind of confession, on this kind of faith, and this kind of boldness, I'm going to build my church. And Peter smiled. I'm sure. It was an Instagram moment. This one was going in all of his media posts had he had them. Jesus was affirming Peter in this remarkable way. He was an undisputed hero for the moment. He was Peter, the rock of the early church. And then the story goes on. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must now go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. We've talked about them over these past few weeks too. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And hearing this, the Bible says, Peter took Jesus aside and he, he rebuked him. He said, Jesus, never, Lord, never. This will never happen to you. And, and when Jesus then replies what he says in the face of this apparent exclamation of total devotion to his welfare consistently forces me to rethink how I look at discipleship and what it really means to follow Jesus. And it hit me again this week because the Bible says that Jesus turned and, and said to who? To Peter, to the rock. He said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Are you catching the whiplash here? I mean, one moment, Peter is the building block of the Christian movement. And 10 minutes later, he is the stumbling block to the progress of Jesus. And it happens like this. From A-list to blacklist, that fast. And this is going to be a pattern with Peter. In just a short while, as you now know, uh, Peter is going to be outside the place where Jesus has been taken in and is in the process of starting the torture and the trying that will lead to his crucifixion. And by the firelight, he's going to go through this Big test. He was the one who just hours before said when Jesus promised that he was going to be betrayed by someone that were there that they would leave him behind. Peter was the one, classical style, says, never, Lord, never. I'm never leaving you. These guys may abandon you, but I'm with you to the end. They can't do anything to me that would split us apart. Never, Lord. And then there, by the firelight, the servant girl recognizes him and Peter denies even knowing him. I don't know him. I wasn't with him. 
hardly ever heard of him. Three times. Three times. From the A-list to the blacklist, from the building block to the stumbling block. Just that fast. You know, I'm struck as I listen to this story that this demands some kind of explanation. How is it that somebody who's got so much going for them, who's so much in line with Jesus and his way, can so quickly lose it and, 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 and turn in a different direction and drop the ball and fail and stumble in this way. And I think we got to ask the question because we know it's true for me and you too. We know there are times we have these Instagrammable moments of faithfulness in our lives. When we just get it, we see it clearly, we know what the truth is, we're pursuing it, we're all in. You can count on us, God, we'll be there. And then, under pressure, we blow it. And we stumble and fall. How does this happen? What's going on here? Well, the turning point, I think, has to do with what are probably the most challenging words that Jesus ever spoke to, any who would follow after him. The passage from Matthew 16 actually ends with those words. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save her life will need to lose it. And... and and whoever loses her life for me will find it. We'll find a new, larger, greater, better kind of life. Now, I don't think there are any words that Jesus ever speaks that feel more like a bait and switch than these ones. Because Jesus doesn't certainly start out this way with any of the disciples talking like this. Uh, in fact, actually, he makes these wonderful invitations. He says, come dine with me. Come fish with me. Let's have fun. Let's hang out. Let's eat. And the disciples say, yeah, sign me up for that. I'm in. And then Jesus gets a little bit more pointed, and he says, hey, Come do life with me. Follow after me. Let's not just do this once. Let's make this an ongoing experience. And we say, okay, you're, you're a great guy. I could learn from you. I think I'll follow after. Your companionship could make a difference in my life. And then Jesus kind of moves on at other points and says, in effect, come dance with me. I have told you everything. Everything I'm teaching you is it so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. And we think, hey, who doesn't want more joy? Let's go. And then he says, now come die with me. What, what? What? Yeah, come take up your cross and follow after me. Deny yourself. 
And we think to ourselves, oh, never, Lord. (laughs) Uh, That's not me. And I just want to say to you that that's natural. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that if you don't have that response, you're not understanding what Jesus is inviting you to. This is where discipleship in the deepest way, this is discipleship 2.0, this is where it begins. You have to understand that what he's asking of you does run contrary to nature. From our earliest days, we are taught that the basic goal of life is to preserve it. I mean, when we were being strapped in to the child seat in the car by mom, all the way to the very end of our journey when we're lying in some hospital bed and they've got the tubes in our body, the basic message is preserve, protect, sustain, secure this life. Here in America, it's not only the maintenance of life that matters to us, it is the maximization of that life. Every voice of our society is telling us that every time, from every place, is keep your life, enhance your life, grow your life, make yourself bigger. And so our lives come to be defined by this process of just bringing it in and and building it up. Our lives are, are measured by our titles and our trophies, by the pleasures and the privileges and comforts we get to enjoy, and the sheepskins that we put on the wall. Hopefully our parents didn't have to pay too much for those. And the shape of our skin, right? The castles we build, the coins we build up. It's all about preserving and protecting and maximizing our lives. And then Jesus comes along and he challenges this. He tells us that maybe we have defined our lives um, too superficially. Maybe we've defined life with a capital L too shallowly, maybe even stupidly at times. He looks right into our eyes as he did into the eyes of those Pharisees we talked about a couple weeks ago. And and he says, hey, you've not been stewarding this thing very well. You've not been managing the resources of the vineyard the way my Father in heaven wants you to. He challenges us like he challenged Caiaphas and, 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 and presents the picture of a God and of a kingdom that's bigger than the little religious box we've built to manage God and manage his demands on us. He blows out the sides of that box. He comes to us the way he does to Herod and he challenges the way we have been um, basically wanting it all to work for us so we could stay on the throne making compromises so that we could keep our position. Jesus comes up and says, I want that seat. I want you to move. No wonder some of us say, never, Lord. Never. And if we are really hearing him, then we rightly recognize about that time that Somebody here needs to die. If we're going to follow Jesus through the 
through the narrow gate, through the eye of the needle into the life of the kingdom of God, if we're going to be born anew uh, into the life of God, if, if we're going to do these things, then the way we have previously defined life and the way we've naturally come at life and at ourselves and preserving ourselves has to die. It has to be lost. It has to be named and in some sense nailed to the cross. It has to be annihilated. It has to happen to us or else someone else needs to die. Maybe the voice of Jesus needs to die. So this dying thing, it, it, it's, it's painful and it's, it's very hard. And, and we just have to confess that. Um, it, it will demand of us something like it, what it demanded of Jesus. It will demand the kind of humility and perseverance that Jesus displays as we see him dragging that cross through the streets of Jerusalem and all the way up that hill. It will mean periods when we cry out, just like Jesus did from the cross, I thirst, because we are missing the satisfactions that previously slaked our thirst when our appetites ran everything. It will mean times when we feel abandoned by God, when we're in pain, we're struggling, we do not feel he's around, and we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where did you go? Where did you go? It will mean cleaving to our spiritual family, like Jesus commanded Mary and John to cleave to each other when things got tough, when all the rest of our family have left us behind because they think we're crazy, that we're following after this way. It will mean opening ourselves up to tremendous vulnerability before the soldiers and the mocking crowds of this world because in the past, when people came at us, they opposed us, we knew what to do, we punch them hard. We call down curses on them but now we're following Jesus. And he told us to love them and to pray for them and to do good to them. And it, it means committing our spirits to God daily. As Jesus prayed, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. And it means hanging in there and walking step by step after him until the day when we stand also before the Heavenly Father in glory and can say, it is finished. This journey is finished. A great preacher from Scotland of a generation ago by the name of George MacDonald once put it this way. It is very crucial that we understand that Christ died to save us, not from suffering per se, but from ourselves, not from injustice, far less from justice, but to save us from being unjust. He died that we might live, but live as he lives, by dying as he died who died to himself that he might live unto God. 
And if we do not die to ourselves, we cannot live to God. And he that does not live unto God is dead and just doesn't know it yet. During the Lenten season, I know we're, we're accustomed to focusing on the cross of Christ. Um, that's a good thing. We're accustomed to thinking about the death that Jesus underwent uh, on our behalf, the death that the Palm Sunday crowd uh, called for. We don't spend perhaps as much time focusing on the death that Christ called for from us. Um, and this death, I need to just be bold to say, is actually entirely worth going through. It is a, it is a loss worth undergoing. It is the path to a much greater kind of communion with God than we could get any other way. It is the road to an eternal peace and prosperity in the richest sense of that abundance that comes through no other path. It's the only way that I know of to gain an absolutely unshakable uh, faith and unswervable hope, a life-changing kind of love that is more precious than anything else we could ever amass to ourselves by trying to keep our old self. But this is what Jesus makes so clear. He, he makes it clear that life doesn't, this life he's calling us to doesn't come from wearing a cross, but bearing a cross. Somebody, some life, has to die. Are you with me so far? Okay, this has been the hard part. So, so thanks for hanging in there um, so far. Uh, I, um, I understand why people choose to say never, Lord. I, I, I get why some people, once they get this part figured out, go, ooh, I'm going to go find the happy church. Um, I'm going to be a spiritual person. You know, uh, but not this Jesus stuff. I mean, I get that because uh, I, I, there's this Peter in me. There's this Simon Peter very much in me. I, I understand why when push came to shove, uh, Peter didn't want to talk about the cross Jesus was going to. And when it got even more intense and he thought, if I admit who I know and that I've been with him, I might wind up on that cross. I totally get why he denied him, why he pushed uh, the reality of Jesus away, I do not like to die to myself, to my selfishness. If somebody had told me before I got married that marriage was one of God's key strategies for killing me, <laughs> I'm talking about the false self in me, that, that being manacled to me for 30 years, as my wife has, she would figure me out completely and know all of my rackets and all those things that needed reformation and renewal and replacement. If I had known about that, would I have signed up? And what about those three cherubs that we had <laughs> who, who looked up so adoringly at their daddy, could do no wrong? Who told me? Nobody told me they would grow up and spot everything wrong with me and name it clearly. 
It's not fun to have the false self unmasked. It's not fun to have the rackets that we operate by known and named. I don't like to die to those well-grooved addictions, compulsions, patterns of spe speaking, indulgences that, that keep me the way I am, that keep me from being more available to God and his purposes. Like Simon Peter, I would like to take parts of the story of Jesus, parts of the teaching of Jesus, the ones that agree with my values, the ones that affirm the things that I'm kind of generally doing anyway, that leave me feeling spiritual without this cost stuff. I get that. I really do. Um, and that's why there's a big part of me that would like to wear crosses of jewelry but not bear cross as a disciple. Do you get that? Can you resonate with that? So I feel that way. Except for the part of me that knows I need to die. That knows that those things my wife and kids see, my coworkers see, my best friends see about me is really out of line with health, with usefulness to God. There's, there's those moments when I realize, you know what? Me dying to those things would be good. And every now and then I catch a glimpse of someone who, who, who somehow has learned to die to those kinds of things. And, and there's a beauty to that life that just inspires something in me. And I, get, I catch a glimpse of Jesus or, or of somebody like Arlen D. Williams Jr. Do any of you know that name? If you've ever lived in the Washington, D.C. area, that name is ringing a bell for you because there's actually a bridge named the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Bridge. And there's a reason why it was named for him. It was because on January the 13th, 1982, Arlen D. Williams was in an airplane whose wings iced up just shortly after takeoff. And that plane came down like the other planes we've seen coming down in recent days, only this one came crashing down in January into the Potomac River. I, by sheer coincidence, call it Providence, I was just blocks away. I was visiting a girlfriend. We heard the sirens, the emergency vehicles. We turned in, tuned in to the, to the television to see what, what this was all about. We saw the wreckage. We saw amazingly that there were a few survivors and they were in the waters of the Potomac. And hypothermia, death, was closing in fast. And one of the people that was in that water, though we didn't know it at the time, was this guy, Arlen D. Williams Jr. He was 46 years old. He was a, uh, an employee of the United States Federal Reserve, and he was in the water. And I want to tell you how the Washington Post describes what happens next. Five different times, a helicopter dropped a rope down to save Williams. How many times? Five times. The rope of salvation descended from the sky to Arlen D. Williams. 
Five times, says the article. Williams took hold of the rope and passed it to other passengers so that they could be saved. When the rope was extended to Williams for the sixth time, the article puts it, he could not take hold and succumbed to the frigid waters. His heroism, the journalist writes, was not rash. Aware that his own strength was fading, Williams deliberately handed hope to someone else. Not just once, but again and again and again and again. He died to self so that somebody else might live. And in that process, Arlen D. Williams Jr. became a glorious witness to the kind of love and life that is never dead, that, is, that lives on in an extraordinary kind of way. My friends, there is a bridge to new life that stands at a place where someone made that kind of deliberate choice only it was you and me to whom he passed the rope. No one takes my life from me, said Jesus. Nobody is, is making this choice for me. I'm making this choice. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I let go of my own accord. And a short while later, Jesus goes on to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I tell you the truth, he said this to Peter and to the other disciples, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless it splits open and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In its death, fruitfulness unimagined becomes possible. I tell you, the man who loves his life, said Jesus, who loves the present life, will lose it anyway. Going to lose it anyway. But the one who hates his life in this world, who, who believes in, in an even greater kind of life, will keep it for eternal life. For whoever serves me must follow me, must imitate me, must do what I do. By the way, that's what the word disciple means. It doesn't mean an admirer, it means an imitator. So the purpose of the Lenten season, to say this in closing, this whole season is this opportunity to ponder afresh that when he could have done otherwise, freely done otherwise, Jesus chose to take up his cross and to pay the ultimate price for human sin that you and I might be completely forgiven and freed up to live a forever life with God. He chose it. He could have taken the rope of salvation and saved himself, but he passed it instead. And 
And he did this because he loves you and he loves me and he wants us to find the greater kind of life. And so I would just say that if you have never taken hold of that rope before, don't let the moment pass right now. Take hold of the hope, the forgiveness, the new life. His death has made possible for you. And begin, go out from this place, walking with him, and into that new life of the kingdom of God in a wonderful way. Let this family be the blanket that wraps around you to come out of the water. And as you begin that journey, cross over the bridge into this new life. Don't miss the opportunity. If you've never done that, do that today. But don't let it stop there. Don't let it stop there. Don't let the cross be just a symbol upon a wall. This is one of the reasons why we don't put crosses up on walls in this church. We don't want them to become just furniture to us. Don't let it be anything but a signpost to you of the kind of life that you know Jesus is calling you to walk. And so live as he lived. Pass the rope to other people. Even if you've stumbled and fallen like Peter did, made all kinds of mistakes, rise up today and start the journey again. Face the selfishness. Face the sin, the stuff that needs killing in yourself. Look it in the face. If you're having trouble recognizing it, ask somebody who's close to you what you should be seeing and turn it over to him. Say, Jesus, help me with this. Kill this in me. Help me change. Die to the compulsion, the distractions, the, the, the resentments that stand between you and the freedom that God wants for you. Make some difficult decisions in the days ahead to do something that you might never do before, but which Jesus would do, living in you. Pass the rope to people. You've got that power. For if you would come after me, said Jesus then you must deny your present self and take up your cross and follow me. And as you do that, remember that the goal line isn't actually death. It is the Easter life that waits for those who walk with him. Let's pray together. And now, gracious God, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Do in us what we don't know how to do in ourselves. And move us to respond to the wonder of your grace and to find that more abundant and eternal life which is why you sent Jesus. For we pray in his holy name and all God's disciples said, amen.